This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Daryl Hammond, CEO and founder of Kaboom, a national organization with a mission to build great play spaces through the participation and leadership of communities. Kaboom dreams of an America in which every child has a place to play within walking distance. Kaboom has served millions of children by providing them with places to play and explore in their own neighborhoods. Through community partnerships, Kaboom has built more than 2,200 playgrounds, mapped over 90,000 places to play, and successfully advocated for play policies in hundreds of cities across the nation. Kaboom has consistently been recognized as one of the best nonprofits to work for in America, and Daryl's work and leadership has been widely recognized. His many honors, too many to list here today, include the Lewis Hines Distinguished Service Award, the Schwab Foundation's U.S. Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award, designation by Forbes as an Impact 30 Social Entrepreneur, the Social Entrepreneurship Award and Honorary Degree from Stevenson University, the 40 Under 40 Award from the Washington Business Journal, the American Express NGEN Leadership Award, and recognition as an Ashoka Fellow. We share that, and too many others to list. Daryl, is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Kaboom, A Movement to Save Play. This is a terrific book, and I'd really like to urge listeners to go out and buy a copy. I'm reading it myself and enjoying it tremendously. Daryl, it's a great pleasure to speak with you this, this morning. It's great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. All right. So I've read and heard you talk about the experiences that led you to create Kaboom. And today I'd like to begin our conversation by focusing on two elements. Uh, First, your formative experiences at Moosehead School in Illinois. In your book, you write so compellingly about how your experiences there really positively shaped your life. And so my question for you is, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how your experiences at at Moosehead shaped your work at Kaboom? Yeah, certainly. So I'm a product of philanthropy and charity. When I was uh, just one year old, my mom gave birth to my youngest sister, which made for the eighth of the Hammond kids. And my father, who was a cross-country truck driver, went to unload a truck one day and never came back and uh, left my mom to care for all of us. And as hard as she tried, after several nervous breakdowns, we essentially were about ready to become wards of the court. And she made the hardest decision for her, but what became the best decision for us and shipped us almost 3,500 miles away to a group home Mooseheart, where I was raised for 14 years, and you know, at Mooseheart, which is you know a uh, charity that takes at-risk kids, um, mainly through the Fraternal Benefit Society of the Moose, and raises them right to give them an opportunity to achieve their full potential. And I certainly got that, as did over 13,000 other kids that in its 100 years this year since its existence that have been able to raise and grow up uh, through that place. 
Wow. Uh, one of the things I, you talk about in the book uh, that was so interesting to me is the way that the community there was shaped and really with this wonderful balance of structure, but also opportunities for play. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, your experiences of play at Moosehead and, and how those things really, is it Moosehead or Moose Heart? I'm, I'm, Moose, Moose Heart. Moose Heart, yeah. Moose how uh, you experienced play at at Moose Heart? That was a question that I really wanted to ask you. Yeah, so I mean, uh, a lot of people would assume that I started Moose. I mean, I started Kaboom because I I didn't have a good play experience growing up, and that actually it was quite the opposite. And, and as you point out, there were both good structured opportunities around arts and culture, band and choir, and sports activities, but at the same time there was a 1,200-acre campus that included a 300-acre lake that allowed us for opportunities to both roam and to be bored and to come up with our own type of unstructured uh, play um, that we had to either make up or occupy our own time. So I had a nice balance of kind of active play with you know, being physically active, challenging play, and social play uh, with friends and colleagues, and, uh, you know, frankly, I think that that's a missing ingredient in, in today's generation of kids. You, one of the things you talk about is climbing trees, and trees like being the ultimate nature's jungle gym, and uh, I climb trees as a Boy Scout myself, and I often feel like the absence of climbable trees is a tragedy for American youth, and uh, I just wondered about, about that in particular. Because uh, And one of the things I've heard you write about, which I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, is just um, the experience of risk at play and how a little bit of risk is such a powerful thing when you're, um, when you're experiencing play. Yeah, you know, I, the, one of the f most questions I get asked most frequently is, what is the best type of play for kids? And I think the answer is easy. It's all type of play, and it's particularly a balance in the type of play that they're getting. And when I was a youngster, as you allude to, uh, I swam in the lake, I played underneath the waterfall, I climbed trees, and I played soccer, football, basketball, baseball. And, um, you know, Climbing trees, playing in a waterfall had an element of risk associated with it. Uh, and in a generation, what has happened is that we've de-risked play opportunities because of fear of lawsuits, regulations, and liability, uh, which makes playgrounds actually less fun for kids to actually engage with, and they master the play opportunity too soon, and then they go on to other things, which may not be what we actually want them to do. So what we try to advocate here for at Kaboom is to ensure that kids uh, are getting a balanced type of play, that it's unstructured, outside, and that there's also a degree of structured activity in there too. And some of the ideas around this is, I remember playing in three different sports one season each, and now kids are playing in one sport three seasons um, and not getting any variety. And then if they're not mastering it, they're dropping out, and we're only training elite soccer players, elite baseball players, elite football players. And I think that there's a dire consequence to society when that starts to happen. And we've taken the fun, the camaraderie, the teamwork out of it, uh, and we're having kids grow up without this type of experience that's really beneficial um, for them to be successful adults. 
And so the best type of play is a balanced approach. The balanced approach needs to be with a lot of different variety. And with that variety, uh, you know, we need to spark interest in kids that creates child-directed play where it fuels possibly some interest and passions that may lead to careers in the future instead of limiting the choices that they have and only tunneling or tracking them into one specific thing. I mean, I, I, I like to remind people that uh, Michael Jordan, the basketball player, uh, did not make his freshman or sophomore basketball team. Wow, yeah. And, um, you know, we all know how his story turned out. And so we got to let kids develop on different time frames instead of putting them in organized events and activities younger and younger, having them drop out younger and younger, and then dealing with the consequences that are becoming of that. I relate so much to that as a parent myself. I think that uh, we've often just, what we see in schools is that we're turning play into another form of work because it becomes so structured and so focused on, like you said, mastery and not enough of that just inspiring open space. Um, I wanted to ask you about this triggering incident for your whole um, organization. And, and one of the reasons I want to ask this question is I've talked to many social entrepreneurs, and I think it's so interesting that so many have this same experience where they have something that happens that uh, is a trigger because it has such a profound experience on them. And, and for you, it was about a story that you read in the Washington Post that ultimately led to your first uh, construction of your uh, first playground in Washington, D.C. And I wonder if you could tell that story, but with a little bit of uh, perhaps insight, I'm sure that you know, you've reflected on it, that what was it about that experience that uh, had the, the made such a profound impression on you that it then led to launching this whole incredible organization that has grown over time? Well, I mean, the interesting part about it is uh, now that you know my personal story, what essentially happened was I dropped out of college. I was living on a friend's couch in Washington, D.C., and distinctly remember that I was helping organize a playground project for a youth service conference, but it was more about the volunteer experience than it was about, you know, really community engagement or why and what is the best type of play for kids and how can this provide it. Uh, I was on contract with this group trying to do the right thing. And this article in the Washington Post appeared about a reporter who had previously seen a very small blurb in the metro section, almost a throwaway line about how two kids had suffocated in a car and died. And she was enraged about this and went down to Stoddart Terrace community where this had happened in Anacostia and spent some time and was trying to understand what was the larger story that was happening there. And she did two things. She talked to a lot of people and saw that finger pointing had um, became the solution and everybody was pointing out what somebody else didn't do. Uh, the mayor to the park and rec department, the park and rec department to the housing authority, the housing authority to the residents, the residents pointing you know, fingers at each other, and nobody was doing anything. Well, the other thing that she did was because they had crawled into an, an abandoned car during a heat wave, which they had obviously done previously because that's where their toys were and they suffocated and died. And uh, she went around the community and couldn't find a playground within three miles of where these kids were at. And the headline of the story where she talked about this just screamed out that said, no place to play. And what struck me personally about it was 
Uh, I was two years old when my father left my family, and that's the same age that Clinton, the little brother, was. And her older cousin, uh, Aisha, was four years old when I went to this group home. And you look at the different paths that we then lived. I had a community surround themselves, and as Mrs. Clinton always talks about, it takes a village to raise a child. A village to help raise me. And these kids did not have a village come to their rescue. So I didn't set out to start an organization. Uh, I, like the reporter, uh, felt a sense of justice about this, wanted to simply try to provide one playground um, for that, ex that community, and that has led to what we've done. Uh, I didn't draw this up in a, a business class, or I didn't write a business plan. Um, you know, it kind of organically grew into what it's grown in and authentically into what it's today versus uh, some concern or fear that I have these days is that people set out to be social entrepreneurs, so they set out to be social innovators. And I think that that's a good thing, but they're not iterating and piloting and growing. They're writing big business plans to change the world and actually haven't started doing anything yet. Right. So that's a key insight, and I just would like to see if I got that right, because um, I think what you're saying is so profound that really it's about going out and doing something and having a profound experience and then allowing that experience to emerge into something rather than sort of going out, as you said, starting out with the idea to change the world. But just don't, don't try to change the world. Just go out and try to do something positive and then see how you react, how your heart reacts to that. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, you know, I think being small can make you great. And I think we're forced, we're, we're somewhat for, focused on things like scale, but scale to what end? You could be mediocre at scale and actually be doing a disservice. Instead of saying, um, what is the thing that I can be best in class at? How can I do it um, you know, where it's both meaningful and significant to me and to others? Maybe it's an organization or maybe it's not, and that's okay. The concern that I have when I talk to uh, folks they're chasing a dream or chasing a title or they're chasing recognition and it's less about the passion and purpose and it's more about kind of the job title. Oh, such a, that's such an important point and I want to thank you for that. I, can, can you... I'm, not popular, I'm not popular by saying this, I'll tell you that. And I think that, that you know, there is a whole cottage industry that's teaching people to scale, that's teaching people to find a social problem and solve it on the scale that it exists. And there's lots of business plans that go up in people's offices and shelves as almost mementos to what possibly could be. And I'm not saying that disruption is not needed or necessary, but actually bearing witness and actually doing work is equally as important to how articulate you could be in writing a business plan or coming up with a financial model that you may or may not know that actually works. Right. And 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 what you said I think is so important to the authenticity of the work that 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 if people really engage with specific things, well two points. One, first, not everything in life has to scale. That 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 you can do something really valuable and you shouldn't set out necessarily to try to change the world with everything you do. Um, and that, but the second part is about that discovery that it's only through that authentic experience where you're really focused on, on a specific situation that you probably can discover the thing that should scale. So that's such an important uh, point. Um, 
Could could you tell us? I'm just curious about this. How did you come up with the name Kaboom? It's such a cool name. I mean, it's one of those things that just really resonates with people immediately. You think, God, I got to find out about that organization. Well, ironically, 17 years ago, uh, you know, in 1995, when Kaboom was uh, founded, uh, Kaboom was not very popular. <coughs> Excuse me. In certain circles, because it didn't explain what we did. Um, it, uh, you know, and it was kind of whimsical, right? And yeah. Yahoo was just getting started around the same time. Google wasn't even founded, and um, people criticized us. And I, if the truth be told, I actually wanted to call the organization the Institute for Community Building. Ha! Okay. And um, you know, one of the one of the the, the, the co-founders who worked with us at the time didn't think that that was exciting enough. And through talking with kids about this explosion of hope and opportunity and possibility, the kids like kaboom. And so we took that name. And ironically, um, you know, we we you know really didn't want to make it look like a comic book, but using the explosion of hope, possibility, and opportunity, wanted to get people to think differently about what was possible. And um, you know, it was a risky name then. We took a lot of criticism for it because people didn't understand it. It wasn't very mainstream. And now it's it's uh, almost um, too easy for people, uh, but uh, I kind of delight and tickle in that. I'm so glad you didn't call it the Institute for Community Building. <laughs> that's so, a, so that's am a, I. That's a great story. That's a great story. And that's a sign of a good. That's a sign of a good leader. And I I actually write about it in the book. Yeah. Um, they made me start answering the phone. Kaboom. Ah, that's great. And when I did that and heard people's reaction. Uh huh to this sheer kind of joy and wonder and, as you said, question, yeah. um, it started a conversation. Uh, I don't think this stupid community building would have done the same thing. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I'd like you to talk a little about w one of the things you said is that play is foundational to learning and to healthy kids and to healthy communities. And you've really written and spoken, I think, very profoundly about the opportunity cost, really, of having kids that spend so much time in front of screens and don't get out there with that kind of active play that uh, has such a transformative impact on them. Could you talk a little bit about this, the, what you have called the play deficit and the play desert that's out there? Yeah, I, th yeah. Yeah, I think we're robbing kids of their childhood, and somehow we have to figure out if that's okay, and if it's not okay, we have to talk about how do we give the childhood, how do we give kids the childhood that they deserve? And if we do that, play is an easy and maybe the best way to actually talk about going about that. And I think kids and parents uh, and, and communities actually want all kids to su succeed and to achieve their full potential, but they're misinterpreting how to go about that. And what we've done is over-organized, over-structured, and pushed learning, per se, organized learning on kids younger and younger um, around uh, testing or organized activities or siloing them into one event and activity instead of saying that kids are going to learn by bearing witness, by experience. And the more experience that they can have, the better choices that they're going to be able to make. And those choices are going to be informed by this tangential connection between the, the hand, the heart, and the mind. 
And right now, I think all we're doing is trying to train the mind, and the mind doesn't learn that way, so the head and heart gets left behind, and we don't give kids the greatest opportunity to have a life well lived or a life of passion and purpose around what they actually may be good at, uh, what they may be good at but be passionate about. And uh, we have to restrike that in, uh, in communities. And you know, we have to bring back tinkering. We have to bring back a critical mass of people playing um, street hockey and stick baseball. Um, you know, recently I was on a trip and uh, I was talking to some com community leaders and frankly, you know, they were concerned about, um, you know, they were concerned about uh, organized sports in as much as you, you can't play baseball without it being on a baseball diamond now. Why? Well, because they want that baseball diamond experience. And what it's done is it's, it's changed, um, you know, kids' appetite and appreciation for discovery around you actually can play the game in a different way, maybe use a different ball right. that doesn't fly as far. Yeah. Or if you're in Africa, if you're in Africa or many parts of the world, the game of soccer doesn't start until you actually make the soccer ball that you're going to play with. So the, the best part of play sometimes is in the making, and we've stripped the making out of a lot of things. And I think actually one of the things I'm most excited about and passionate about is Kane's Arcade, the nine-year-old who uh, you know, couldn't go to soccer camp during the summer because his dad couldn't afford it and spent the whole summer in his auto parts store and built a cardboard arcade. And uh, you know, on the last day of the summer, a filmmaker showed up to buy a door handle for the car that he was about ready to sell because he thought he could get more money for it. And he bought a $2 fun pass from this kid, and two things happened. Um, this kid's creativity and imagination of being able to make this arcade out of things that he had, cardboard, boxes, paper, um, was a phenomenal experience and the joy that he brought from it. The second thing was the filmmaker, Nirvan, who stopped to spend time appreciating the joy that he had seen. And now this, you know, this year will be the second annual global cardboard box challenge trying to get every community on every continent talking about free, unstructured, imaginative, creative play and how simple and free it can become, both free in the materials and the free play that comes from it being self-directed and self-guided. Wow, that's a great story. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Daryl Hammond, CEO and founder of Kaboom. I think one of the really powerful themes in your work is 
how you engage communities in this process so that you're not just solving a problem, you're not just solving a problem in isolation, but really engaging all the elements of the community to come together to almost play with you to make these play spaces. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because I think I want to make sure listeners understand that this isn't just about creating um, a playground, but it's really about a whole process of community engagement. Yeah, so, you know, our we use playgrounds as a Trojan horse to get the communities to self-organize, to fight for something instead of fighting against something. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you. Two things. You had Habitat for Humanity and we took the best of Habitat for Humanity sweat equity model. And instead of making it for one family benefiting, we made, how could the whole community put sweat equity into something so that they could take long-term pride and ownership into what they built instead of, what somebody else built for them, but how can we do that with them? And the second thing is, you know, we learn from Billy Shore and share our strength, which said corporations have assets. How can we deploy those side by side with community? And they created the capital and half of the volunteer force, and we worked side by side with the community to create the other 15% of the fund so that they have capital in it as well, and then volunteers. And together, that what, that's what's made um, our public-private partnership model where in the 17 years we've raised over $250 million, of which about 90% of it has been in this fee-for-service sustainable and scaled model instead of waiting for um, donations or um, investments from other people who thought our ideas were good enough to receive a small amount of money to try to turn it into sustainable change. Right, right. So you you skipped the part where you did the uh, um, you know longitudinal double blind study about whether this works, and you went straight to just this is a service model. We're going to engage people in it, and that's going to be our way of sustaining the work. Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. We're still building both the revenue model and the service delivery model to constantly tweak and iterate it. I think the important thing was is that once we realized that our revenue model was going to be based on service delivery, you had to become best in class at that service delivery. And what was interesting about it is, is that it may be the first time somebody builds a playground, um, both a community and a corporation, but it's not our first time. And what we have to be able to do is to make mistakes, but make new mistakes, not the same mistakes over and over, because our best customers are, are our repeat customers, because they have a good experience and then try to figure out how to do it again and again. And I think all too often, we're looking at who's our next big fish, instead of who's the big fish we got right now, and how can we go even deeper and bigger with them, and add other people on top of it. And I've seen over and over and over and everybody asks us what's the secret to our success and the secret to our success is you know we got a revenue model we became best in class at it we over under promised and over delivered and people wanted to come back and do it again and they were willing to pay for it yeah yeah i've heard you tell two very powerful stories uh and there's probably many more where those came from but i wonder if you could share these or or similar ones they're short but i think they're very provocative one is and they're both actually based in pennsylvania one is about braddock pennsylvania and the other is about juanita in nice town could you tell those stories do you remember them 
Yeah, so so Juanita, uh, we had the opportunity to work in Nicetown, a uh, neighborhood of Philadelphia, and uh, Vice President Gore and General Colin Powell actually attended that build as part of the President's Summit for America's Future, what has now become America's Promise. And it was a phenomenal experience and a, and a great day. Uh, and at the couple uh, days after the playground had opened, Juanita, who was uh, on the planning committee for the project, had gotten up um, and went across the street and found that there was graffiti on it. And she was angry and frustrated, and she called us to find out what she should do and almost implied that we should fix it. And when it was too early in the morning for anybody at Kaboom to actually be answering the phones, um, as an hourly worker, she decided to take the day off, scrub the graffiti, so that when the kids came home from school that day, they would not see graffiti on the playground that volunteers, including their neighbors, parents, and people in the community had helped build. And unfortunately, this thing happened several times over a couple of months, and every time she would choose to take the day off, lose a day's pay, so that the kids from the school would not see, coming home from school would not see graffiti on the playground that volunteers had built. And two, uh, last, two years ago, I was in Nicetown for the 14th birthday party of that park and saw the pride that emanated um, from no graffiti. And actually, the trees that we had planted started to actually be large enough to provide shade. And, and I think that that's the personal responsibility um, that somebody took. And the longitudinal that said trees are good. They may not provide shade now, but years later, they're providing shade. And, in, and in decades later, they're going to continue to provide shade for other kids. And I think that that's a, a great joy. And you know, in Braddock, uh, Pennsylvania, um, we got connected with uh, Mayor Fetterman, who was an AmeriCorps member, um, decided to devote his whole time and attention um, to revitalizing Braddock, which w once was a booming suburb of uh, Pennsylvania, of Pittsburgh. And, you know, it had multiple car dealerships, restaurants, salons, and barbershops. And when we started working with them, they had no single business in town. So no tax base. And, but he, he saw the vision that if we started with and for the kids and created an outdoor environment, it would become a tipping point to show people what through participation, through engagement, through collaboration that they could accomplish. And we organized a uh, playground project um, right down in the middle of the town and to hear Mayor Fetterman talk about um, uh, what has been able to happen since um, has really been phenomenal. And, um, you know, the, the playground for us becomes um, an opportunity to, as we talk about as our pillars of change, get people to organize around a common cause, the well-being of kids, um, give them small things that they can do as achievable wins that can lead to larger wins with more confidence. And then the final thing is confidence and courage to say, if we can do this today, what can we do tomorrow? And a couple of weeks ago, I talked to uh, Mayor Fetterman, and they've got their first restaurant tier um, from Pittsburgh, who's actually going to open up a subpost in Braddock, and there's a brewery that's under construction in one of the old buildings uh, uh, in Braddock that's going to make Braddock beer and have a, a little pub in town. So 
things are starting to happen, and he'll directly point to being able to both see the playground, for other people to see the playground, and to see that change was possible, and to invite people to be a part, uh, participant in it. I love those stories because they just so illustrate that community arises from, like you said, individual personal responsibility and people coming together to creatively build something and not just from like abstract policies somewhere, but rather the commitment of individuals. And, and um, it's just a testament to the transformation really of the community through your work. So thank you so much for sharing that. I um, I wonder, I'd like to ask you about a couple of uh, of of pieces of your work that are very evident. Um, one of is the Playful City USA uh, designation and how that works and what that means. And the other one is the map of play that Kaboom has is working on. So they go hand in hand. And I think that one of the things we need to understand is where are the play opportunities that kids are currently participating in and what is the context of that? Because that's the starting point to make more and better informed decisions. And we've now seen cities like Chicago, Alexandria, Virginia, Ames, um, Mississippi, uh, and, and Jackson, Mississippi start to look at all their play opportunities, understand what the quality of those play opportunities um, are, and who has access to them through overlaying maps of race and income, obesity rates. It's almost comparable to food deserts of what a play desert is. But you won't know that until you understand where the opportunities are. And as soon as you understand where the opportunities are, if there's any gap, you can make better informed decisions about resource allocation of where the effort should go to actually improve upon things. And um, the play, Playful City USA designation is a, a means to which we're looking at how do we solve the problem on the scale that it exists and working with um, the cities to become a lever to say, if you understand where it's at, what might be some of the things that could be done, like reinstating recess in schools across the country, providing after-school programming, joint use agreements between one uh, one facility and another. So if there's a playground at a school, it doesn't get closed off on the weekends or evenings or during summer breaks when kids may be able to need it most. So in this resource-constrained environment, we have to be creative about providing opportunities. And if a school has a playground that's closed, when kids could benefit from it most, it just doesn't make sense. So the Playful City USA is recognizing about 212 communities across the country that are on a path to say, we, we think that this is important enough. Uh, we want to shine a light on them. And we, we also then want to share their stories and best practices until we have a nation at play. And um, you know, just based on the fact of the demand that Kaboom gets is greater than any capacity we'll ever have to solve this problem, we've got to work with different levers to try to solve the problem on the scale that exists. So these things really point towards the future. And uh, that's where I wanted to take my next question. You've been doing this work now for more than a decade and have this incredible record of accomplishment. What's your vision for the future of Kaboom? And what would you like to ask people to help you do? What, what can people do to uh, further your mission? Yeah, so you know, we've been at it 17 years, and you know, the demand is getting bigger, not less. So we have to ask ourselves, have we been effective or not? 
and you know we define the problem as um, kids not getting the type of play that we think is necessary and important for them to get the childhood that they deserve and be able to reach their full potential. And if the gap is getting larger and we're out there building playgrounds, what role do we have in actually inspiring, uh, uh, influencing different actions to be able to close the gap faster so that we don't lose a generation of kids and frankly look back and regret it. So we're in a process of saying, you know, how can we support folks on the ground who are, through individual efforts, uh, getting recess reinstated in Chicago and not doing it overnight, but um, doing it as a volunteer of a PTA um, or some entity like that and lift them up, shine a light on them, uh, introduce them to other people who are trying to do the same thing across the country so that they have a peer network. And then once they're successful, um, working with them on, okay, what does quality recess look like? Or um, how, do we, how to allocate resources um, to inequitable parts of the city uh, so that people don't think it's not going to be maintained. So our future is really going to be around how do we change the societal conversation that gets to a play norm where kids get active play every single day at home, in school, and in communities? Uh, the second thing is how do we support these playmakers and get the Calvary revved up um, so that they know what is necessary and needed to get to that play norm? And the third thing is, how do we support it at the city level um, to solve the problem on the scale that it exists? So instead of episodically building one or two playgrounds, we can look at a whole ecosystem and a long-term plan to actually get on a path to solve these things. So we're going to need playmakers to pop up in communities across the country and raise their hand and say yes. And um, we need them to um, get into school board meetings and city council meetings. We need them to write op-eds about why play matters. We need them to role model playful activity and playful behavior by actually distribute, I mean, experiencing the variety of play. Um, we need them to create a critical mass and invite other people to be a part of it. And you know, this is more going to be a people-to-people -people movement than just a policy movement. And but policy is going to be important because what we're really looking for is behavior change. And in the behavior change, it has to start with people behaviors, and then it has to start with a reinforcing mechanism that leads to uh, uh, policies um, and support like that. So. Uh, people can get out there and practice it, invite other people to practice it, and then become advocates at the neighborhood or city level um, uh, to map where the opportunities are, what the quality of those opportunities are, what the policies that do or don't exist, and what might be some of the other best practices that are happening across the country that they can come back to their own city and suggest to their leaders to learn about adopting in their neighborhoods. One of the things that I noted in your background was that you really had, I think, a deep impression made on you in your early work with asset-based community development. And now you've got this 17-year uh, track record of working really across the country. And <clears throat> I wonder if you've thought and reflected about uh, the next generation of social entrepreneurs <clears throat> and specific opportunities that you see. I know that sometimes entrepreneurs 
see opportunities and they say, boy, someone's going to tackle that. Someone's going to really make a difference looking at that. And I wonder if any specific things have come to your mind to say, here are some things that I think are going to be the next generation of entrepreneurship. You know, I don't think it's the what. I think it's the how. And um, the, the what is water, food, security, uh, hunger, uh, all those things are important, and frankly, I don't think one is more important than the other. We have to talk about the whole. How do we raise whole children? How do we get healthy communities? And the way that we do that is talk about balance. And uh, we live in ecosystems. And if the only thing that I did was spread a play message at the you know, at the at odds with um, kids getting appropriate learning, that that's not a good balanced approach. If I, as others do, talk about kids only needing to be in organized activities, that's not a balanced approach. And I think what entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, business leaders need to really do is talk about how do we benefit whole kids, whole families, and healthy communities and understand the ecosystem that it exists and whatever solution we're trying to provide, not try to do it at the distraction or monopoly of other things that are going to be needed and necessary um, in the kids and communities' lives. Darrell, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I'd like to just shift the, the lens a little bit right at the end of our conversation. And you're probably one of the greatest uh, social entrepreneurs of your generation right now. And I know that many of the people who listen to this will be <clears throat> will think be thinking of themselves as social entrepreneurs and planning social ventures and and uh, inspired to do work that's similar to the work that you've done. What, what can you share in terms of your journey? And uh, it, I'd like to frame the question this way. You know, we tend to, I think glorify in some ways this kind of work and um, and not always reveal the tough spots or the the heartaches the the, the stuff that's hard and what what can you share about uh, working through the hard places and your wisdom in terms of your commitment um, in building uh, an enterprise like this of such enormous scale and impact yeah thanks I mean I think the biggest challenges that we've had have not been external. Um, to anybody else. They've been the things that I need to work on most. And uh, there's a lot of times over the course of the years that people tell me how great I am. And if I constantly believe that, I'm not going to work on the things that I can get better at. And I spend hopefully 95% of my time on the 5% of the things that I know I should and could be doing better because that's going to have the biggest inflection on my personal and the organizational growth. And um, uh, you know, a lot of times we externalize that about do more of what you're good at instead of become a balanced leader and get better at some of the things that you don't do as well um, so that there could be a significant inflection possibility or opportunity. And I think for me, one thing that's always been true and two things that I've learned is that you've got to focus on being best in class. And once you become best in class, other opportunities start to uh, create themselves. But if you spread yourself too thin before you're best in class, you just don't have it. The second thing is um, you, know, you really have to have the talent on the bus. And um, you, know, you, you, you can't just pick people who are like you. And I always tell the story of you know, we hired uh, Bruce Bowman, who was a board member of Kaboom, to be our chief operating officer. And he's also served as my best mentor. And, you know, he worked with Ben and Jerry's from when they were a small 
a several million dollar company to a $300 million company. So he's worked with entrepreneurs. He understands the triple bottom line. He understands product marketing, manufacturing, distribution. And for him to come work in a, at the time, $9 million organization was a bigger risk for him than it was for me. But I fully gave him responsibility and authority. And, and he hired a couple of people that when I interviewed them, I said, I just don't know how they're going to work for us. And one's been here five years, the other one's been here seven years, and they've been transformational, not just transactional, but transformational to our organization. And that's because I said to Bruce, you pick the talent that can work with you, and I'll learn to work with them because it'll, uh, frankly, uh, make me better. And the third thing is you've got to focus on your revenue stream, and you've got to know where it's going to come from and how does it become repeatable and consistent. And, it, you know, there's a saying out there that says, without margin, there's no mission. Right, um, right. <laughs> you've got to understand how you're going to get paid and your enterprise is going to get paid for doing what you do and relentlessly focus on it. And philanthropy may be a part of it, but you better relentlessly focus on it because you're not going to be able to put your own oxygen mask on and help a lot more people if all you're doing is wondering um, where, where the... Uh, uh, you're going to be able to make the next payroll from. Right, right. Ah, tremendous words of wisdom. Uh, Daryl, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to learn more about Kaboom, the best place for them to go is to your website, kaboom.org. And, yeah, and you also have a Facebook presence at facebook.com backslash kaboom. Is there, is there anywhere else people should go? Uh, those are the two places, and uh, I hope to see them outside playing. That's terrific. Thank you so much for your inspiring leadership and work and for helping to make an America where every child has access to healthy play. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.